Robert Hansen was born in 1944 uh, in the Chicago area. He was uh, raised by his parents right at the tail end of World War II, and, and as he grew, he went to high school, later on went to Knox College to get his bachelor's degree, and decided he would uh, perhaps go into dentistry, went to Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois to um, get his dental degree, and midway through that, he decided to change his path and uh, thought, I'd rather get an MBA, and got an MBA instead. Uh, Robert Hansen uh, met his future wife, and uh, they began to date. He was Lutheran, she was Roman Catholic, and uh, he decided if he was going to be able to marry her that he would probably need to convert to Roman Catholicism. He was very serious about his, his uh, religion, and uh, as they were married and, and they began their life together, he committed himself to being very sincere in his faith. He began, began to uh, work with and belong to an organization called Opus Dei, which is literally Latin for the work of God. It was a Roman Catholic movement that brought the gospel into everyday life. He was very committed to that. Uh, they had children, and uh, he settled down in, in that area, began to work in, in business. But when he turned 34 years of age, he decided on a pretty major career change. 34 years of age, he said, I think I'm ready to, to apply to and see if I can be accepted to the FBI. And he applied to the FBI and was accepted as an FBI agent in 1976. Began work there, very committed to it, uh, very diligent, uh, began to be, prom uh, to be promoted in his job. And then 1979, something happened that people did not realize and uh, wouldn't realize till decades later, but Robert Hansen made a decision. And that decision was that he would become an agent for the Soviet Union. And for the next 20 plus years of his life and his commitment to uh, uh, the FBI, he also was committed to his own personal wealth as he gained uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars giving information to the Soviet Union. Robert Hansen had every appearance of being a very loyal and faithful FBI agent, but really, uh, he was not. There was a spy in the camp. We're going to look at a parable that talks about uh, different people uh, in the same location. And Jesus, in this parable, uses an agricultural metaphor to explain it. I want you to turn to your bulletins, your Bibles. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 24. We are spending, as we talked about last week, and, and we'll continue the next few weeks, we are spending our time in Matthew 13. These are kingdom parables. This is Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven where God is in control, where God rules all things. And uh, he gives these parables so we can have a, have a deeper and more profound understanding of what he is preaching and what he came to, to bring into the world. So verse 24 of Matthew 13, we'll begin there. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? 
An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. And then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. This is the word of God. In the older translations, uh, weed, the word weed wasn't used. Uh, an English word tare, T-A-R-E, is used. And uh, it's actually a type of weed that's found uh, in, in Eurasia, in this part of the world. It's, um, it's a, uh, the Latin word for it is lolium timolentum. And it's, uh, the, the weed is called the bearded darnel. Darnel is this, this ryegrass that grows in that area uh, naturally. And I have a picture of, there it is, the bearded darnel. Aren't you glad you came? Um, that's, the, uh, that's the picture. That's the, the fruit once it, once it takes seed. Interestingly enough, though, the bearded darnel, when it begins it, and the first shoots come up, it looks exactly like shoots of wheat. You can't tell them apart. So any, any weed that'd be in that field, you, you wouldn't tell them apart until they actually form the fruit. And this is what it looks like in the field. It's just, there, there's just all sorts of beautiful green shoots, but then you really can't tell un until the fruit comes out. And, and interesting enough too, this, this weed uh, is not just not wheat, it, its seeds actually are, are a poison. It's... It, uh, it's very, very serious. You, you can't eat this, this, uh, the fruit of that weed. It, it's very detrimental to you physically. So why this parable? Why, why would Jesus talk about this? Here he uses the metaphor of, of, of this field. It's, it's an agrarian metaphor. Uh, and as I, as I studied it and as I looked at it, I see three things that I think are important uh, to think about, and, and I think that Jesus is, is attempting to communicate through this parable, three things at least that I see. First one is this. God's the one who's in control. God's in control. In 1 Samuel 14, uh, John Parker talked about uh, this passage uh, a couple years ago, really, it's, and, and it's one, one of my favorites. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, uh, is going to battle, and they are fighting the Philistines. Philistines uh, have this perpetual uh, conflict with them, and uh, there's a war on. And uh, Jonathan is traveling, and he, he knows that the enemy is, is in the place where he's traveling. And John, in 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan said this to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, those Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. I love that statement, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. It's the perhaps principle. And then he goes on to say, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. What Jonathan is saying to his armor bearer, and they eventually go up and they fight the Philistines and they prevail, is that he understands that God is the one who's in control ultimately. God is the one who can save. God is the one who can do that in any way that he wishes. He's the one who's in control. Sometimes I think I'm in control. I don't know if you think you're in control from time to time. Uh, you're not. Aren't you glad you came for that too? Um, certainly we have decisions to make and we've got things that we can decide on, obviously. But ultimately, God is the one who's in control. 
I, I have to report to you that um, something that was pretty disturbing to me here at Summit, I've got to do this. Um, I'll do it in the best way I can. Um, this is the week before Hurricane Dorian came, and uh, it was the Wednesday I was at Teach Team, and uh, I have confessed before you before that I hate hurricanes. I do not like them. Um, 2004 convinced me of, of their power and uh, the danger, and I just don't, anytime a hurricane even whispers to come close to Orlando, I, I don't like it, I wanna run. I told the congregation at that time, I think when another hurricane comes, I'm just gonna leave town, which I really want to emotionally. So I'm sitting alone in the conference room with Teach Team, and um, in walks Gary Abbott, our, our campus minister at Waterford, and he says this to me, oh, you're still here? Now, Hurricane Dorian was slated to come that weekend, and uh, I thought, gosh, that's pretty insensitive of you. I'm worried already, and now you're sort of poking fun at me. And I said, yes, I'm still here. 30 seconds later, O.J. Aldrich walks in, our campus pastor at Lake Mary. Those of you at Lake Mary, I just want you to pay attention to what he said to me. He said, oh, you're still here? <laughs> exact same thing that Gary said. I said, yes, I'm still here. It's so insensitive. Then, John Parker, our lead pastor, walks in. Same exact words. Oh, you're still here? I couldn't believe it. Three in a row. And then, to top it all off, Zach Van Dyke walks in, the nicest of everybody. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, oh, you're still here? I just, I hope disciplinary action is taken for that insensitivity. I, I hate hurricanes. You know why? I am not in control. Hurricanes are a continual lesson that you are not in control and I'm not in control. I want to be in control. I want to predict it. I want to be, have everything tied down, but God's the one who's in control. Hurricanes, illnesses, marriages, parenting, our jobs, broken relationships, all this and much more reminders that our story is integrally linked to God's purpose and the fact that He ultimately decides. He's the one who decides. Shouldn't we pull up the weeds? No. Don't pull up the weeds. Wait till, wait till harvest time. Solomon says in Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I like the New Living Translation of this verse. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Isn't that a great translation? Sounds like a Kenny Rogers country song. I like that. You can throw the dice, but God determines how they fall. This parable reminds me, and I think us, that God's in control. He's the one who harvests. We do not. Second thing I see is that God is patient, and we are not. God's patient. Peter, in his second epistle, 2 Peter 3, gives us a better perspective on God and time and patience. He says, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. Beautiful picture. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. God's not bound by time. God is eminently patient. And he goes on to say in this passage, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone. 
I'm not a patient person. I might appear to be patient. I, I like to portray patience, but I'm not a patient person. I, I, I like things handled right away. I hear protests and, and see protests and hear what they have to say that one of the standard protest chants is, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? When do we want it? We want it now. We want justice now. I tend to always rush the process. I want it now. Our kids, my kids, when, when they were growing up, tried to be patient. But, you know, I, I, wanted to, I wanted good things for my kids. I wanted to be on the best teams. I wanted to have them have the best grades. I wanted to go to the best schools. I want them to have the best behavior. And I wanted it now. That, that patience and parenting, it's a challenge. When my son was in middle school. He, he finally uh, was bringing home homework every night. You know, they had sporadic homework when, when in grade school. But middle school, every night he had homework. And I really wanted... To my son to be diligent in his grades. I wanted him to do really well in school. I knew he had a good head on his shoulders, but sometimes I, I just felt he, like he wasn't giving his best. So what I did uh, that year that he started having homework every night is I would go into his room where he had his desk, and he, I said, okay, it's homework time. Let's do your homework. What do you have? And, and he would get it out, and he would have papers, and he would be doing math or English or whatever. And I, I would just stand over him and look just stand and look. And then if he did something wrong, I say, you do that one again, and uh, let's, let's see if we get that one better. Or, you, know, you, you probably could write that better. Let's, let's erase that and do that again. That, that was my help as a parent. My wife, after a week of this behavior on my part, took me aside when I exited his room one night, and, and she said, I have a question for you. She said, do you want to have a good relationship with your son? Which those those... Those are questions from your wife where you go, okay, there's a deeper meaning to this. You know, I, I, I yes, I do. She, she said, do not ever, ever go in his room and watch him do homework again. Okay, loud and clear. I want him to do well now. And how could he do that without my help, right? So I didn't go back. And... Um, Sometimes he didn't do as well as I wanted, but, you know, he just got his Ph.D. three years ago. So my wife was right, and I still have a relationship with my son. God's the one who decides when to harvest. He's the one who's patient. He's in control. He's patient. Last thing I see is God is righteous, and we are not. Probably the one of the most sobering passages in, in all of Scripture, especially the Gospels, is Jesus when he's speaking, speaking to, to a group of people and he says these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there are a lot of people, he's saying, who say the right words. They appear to be followers, but they're not doing God's will. And you see it in their fruit. It's God who is our righteous standard, not our culture, not what we determine ourselves. He's the one who determines what's righteous. He's the one who divides the weeds from the wheat. I'm continually reminded 
and saddened by the fact that I tend to want to make God into my own image instead of realizing that I've been made into his. I forget what I was reading, but I, the, um, the article I was reading referred to a, an article um, that he'd read by a man by the name of John Cooper. And uh, John Cooper, it said, was the lead singer of a Christian rock band called Skillet. And uh, I had uh, heard of Skillet before. I didn't, I've never heard of John Cooper before, but um, I was interested in, in reading the article because of, of the quote that it had. So I found, found um, his posting. Here he is. I don't know if you can see this picture. He's, he's a rocker. I'm telling you, Skillet is hard rock. It reminded me of our rock days when I was in college. I listened to the album. It was pretty cool. But John Cooper was responding to several Christian leaders, several prominent Christian leaders who had denounced their faith and who were now just, just saying that, that they really don't believe anymore. People that, that had had ministries, people that, that were really seemingly very serious about their faith, no longer. So I want to read a portion of what he wrote, and uh, I, I, I was very interested in it, and I hope you'd find it interesting too. He says, okay, I'm saying it because it's too important not to. What's happening to Christianity? More and more of our outspoken leaders or influencers who were once faces of the faith are falling away. And at the same time, they're being very vocal and bold about it. Shockingly, they still want to influence others. For what purpose? As they announce that they are leaving the faith. He says, I'm stunned that the seemingly most important thing for these leaders who have lost their faith is to make such a bold new stance. Basically saying, I've been living and preaching boldly something for 20 years and led generations of people with my teachings and now I no longer believe it. Therefore, I'm going to boldly and loudly tell people it was all wrong while I boldly and loudly lead people into my, ne into my next truth. I'm perplexed. Why, why aren't they embarrassed, humbled, ashamed, fearful, confused? Why be so eager to continue leading people when you clearly don't know where you are headed? He goes on to say, why do people act like being real covers a multitude of sins, as if someone is courageous simply for sharing virally every thought or dark place. That's not courageous, that's cavalier. Have they considered the ramifications as if they're harbingers of truth, saying, I used to think one way and practice it and preach it, but now I've learned all the new truth and will start practicing and preaching it. So the influencers become the voice for truth in whatever stage of life and whatever evolution takes place in their thinking. There's a common thre thread running through these leaders and influencers that basically says, no one else is talking about the real stuff. And this is just flatly false. I just read today in a renowned worship leader's statement, how could a God of love send people to hell? No one talks about it. As if he's the first person to ask this. Brother, you're not unique. The church has wrestled with this for 1,500 years, literally. Everybody talks about it. Children talk about it in Sunday school. There's like a billion books written on the topic. Just because you don't get the answer you want doesn't mean that we are unwilling to wrestle with it. We wrestle with Scripture until we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. As these influencers dis disavow their faith, they always end their statements with their new insight, new truth that is basically a regurgitation of Jesus' words. It's truly bizarre and ironic. They'll say, I'm disavowing my faith, but remember, love people, be generous, forgive others. Why? That's actually not human nature. No child is ever born and says, I just want to love others before loving myself. I want to turn the other cheek. 
I want to give my money away to meet others' needs. Those are Bible principles taught by a prophet, priest, king of kings, who wants us to live by a higher standard, which is not an earthly standard, but rather a kingdom of God standard. He ends this article, I didn't read all of it, but he ends it by saying, I implore you, please, please, in your search for relevancy for the gospel, let us not find creative ways to shape God's word into the image of our culture by stifling inconvenient truths. But rather, let us hold on even tighter to the anchor of the living word of God, for he changes not. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. I like John Cooper. I like what he said. His last album is really good, too, Victorious. If you want to download it, it's great. It's heavy metal. I, I, I have to warn you on that, but it is really good. He's got a great kingdom song in it, too. Why is he writing that? I'll tell you why he's writing it. There are spies in the camp. There are people, there are people who are weeds amongst the wheat. And they forgot the fact, unfortunately, that God is the one who's righteous, not us. God's the one who separates the wheat from the weeds. He's the one who is righteous. Matthew 13 is interesting because two of the parables that Jesus gives are explained. He explains them point by point, and this is one of the parables. He gives the explanation for this parable starting in verse 37 of chapter 13. The disciples asked, explain this parable to us, the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. It's Jesus himself. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be in the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. There's the explanation. Jesus is the one who sows. The field is the world. The people of the kingdom are the wheat. The people of the evil one are the weeds. And the harvest comes at the end of the age. Some things that uh, I see in this in terms of the explanation, I think that the over overriding theme to me as I see it, is that our story isn't done yet. Our story's not done yet. The fruit's not all in. The kingdom, Jesus is saying, is all about fruit. When I go to Publix, I like to go to the fruit section. I don't know what your favorite part of Publix is, but I like the fruit section. I just think it's marvelous. I just think there's all sorts of stuff. They all, they all lined up. It's beautiful. But you know, that, that fruit has to be replenished. And people partake of that fruit, and, it has to, and, and somehow that's, it's always there. Jesus is saying, the fruit's not all in yet. The kingdom is all about fruit. And what he's saying is, and this is what I tend to forget, the kingdom and conflict go hand in hand. Nothing good comes easily. Nothing. Kingdom and conflict go hand in hand. Your story, my story, isn't done yet. 
1944, the year Robert Hansen was born, my mother was a single mom, 26 years of age. Married in her teen years, two children later, her husband left her and uh, divorced her without any kind of financial reward, without any kind of help at all. She was on her own, no high school education, very intelligent young woman, but uh, uh, very, very challenged. She kept her faith, she kept in church. She had a couple that introduced her via mail during the war to a sailor, and when he came home, they met, and, and in May of 1945, they were married in this sailor's little Lutheran church in Northwest Ohio. That was my dad, and uh, my mom and dad had a daughter, me, and then two twin boys after me. The daughter died when she was two and a half years old, and so it was me and my two brothers that grew up with my half-sister and half-brother. My parents were married for 49 years. They had a good marriage. They loved Jesus. My mom, at 26, didn't know what was coming, but she was convinced her story wasn't done yet. God had a plan. There was fruit to be born yet. So what do we do with this parable? How, how, do, how do we put it into force in our lives? Well, here's my challenge, to me anyway. I don't want to be a weed. I don't know about you. I don't want to be a weed. I don't want to produce fruit that's going to be harmful. Anyone can be self-centered. But the re result of self-centeredness is hypocrisy and separation from God. This is a parable that makes me look at my life and say, how, how, how am I doing really? What is my fruit really? Because you can show something to the world, but what's underneath and behind what you show? Interesting, Jesus gives this parable. In the, in the group, obviously, are his 12 disciples, as well as probably scores of other people, and he's giving this parable. You know, one of the people in that group of 12 is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the man who would go ahead and say, I'm going to reject all of it. He hears this, and yet he decides to do something that is evil and contrary to what God wants. That doesn't mean the other disciples weren't tempted to do it as well. Peter denies Jesus three times. They struggle. They, they're going through all this disappointment, but there is a decision that's made by the 11 that separates themselves from Judas. We're not called to be fruit inspectors. We're not called to, to be the ones who decide. God decides. But we are called to continue this process, those of us who love Jesus and called to do his will, we're, we're called to produce good fruit. Toward the end of this chapter, Jesus makes this statement. He says to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house, and they love this statement, who, who brings out of his storeroom new treasure as well as old. What he's saying is the process of us bearing fruit needs to continue. And we need to share that with those around us in the world. Robert Hansen 
had three periods of spying. The first period was 79 through 81, and then it was 84 through 91, and then 92 through the year 2001. Interesting how he did it. He did it in a way where he never actually met a Soviet agent. He did it all uh, by, by uh, telephone, and he made himself known. His drops were, were all uh, uh, made sure that no one saw him do the drops. He, he, he ensured that they really had no idea who he was. In the, in the 90s, the FBI began to realize that there was a serious leak, there was a problem, and, and they were desperately trying to find out who in the world was doing it. They had suspicions, but they had no proof. So as, as the, the, the uh, incidents continued to happen, they, they finally had a, an ex-KGB agent who said he probably could help them. They paid this agent $7 million to provide a tape with this spy's voice on the tape. And as they listened to this tape, they finally realized through a phrase that he said that it was Robert Hansen himself. So on February 18th, 2001, Vienna, Virginia, Robert Hansen went to make another drop to make thousands of dollars as, as, he, as he gave away secrets, secrets on weapons, secrets on military planning, uh, secrets about other spies in other countries. Uh, the FBI arrested him on that day. Eighteen years later, Robert Hansen sits in a maximum security prison in somewhere in Colorado with no chance of ever seeing freedom again. Interesting, though, you think about it, Robert Hansen had performance reviews while he was an FBI agent. He, 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 he was considered a really good agent. He was just a man who underneath wasn't at all. So how do I not become a weed? I go to Psalm 139, and I, I pray this for myself, and I would encourage you to think about it as you, as you think about, okay, what, what, what am I producing in my life? And am I doing what God's will really is? David, in this beautiful Psalm, 139, verses 23 and 24, he prays this, Search me, O God, and know my heart, Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this parable. Thank you for its sobering tone and its challenge. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for every man and woman here, that you would allow us to, to view ourselves, not just through our own eyes, but through your eyes. I pray that as we consider our, our relationship with you, that we would be men and women who would be willing at all times to do your will, not our own, but yours. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as we see you at work in our lives, that we'd be privileged, all of us, produce fruit that will remain for eternity. Thank you for that privilege. Thank you for your son who gives us life, life everlasting. We pray all these things in his glorious and holy name. Amen.
Would you please stand and worship with us?